And I'm excited today because we are continuing a preaching series that we began a few weeks ago. We we're going through the, the book of Acts um, because one of the things that we're, we are contemplating and thinking about as a church is how, what is our role in God's mission to engage the, the world and the town in which we live in. And so because of that, we've decided that for the beginning of 2018, even though we were a bit slow, we waited till after Easter, uh, and 19 and 20, uh, that we were going to look at portions of the, the book of Acts uh, to inspire us as we are uh, God's people being sent out on his mission, uh, enabled by his Holy Spirit. So that's why we're doing Acts, if you're visiting. Um, and yes, yeah, we come before God's word. God's word is always good. Um, it is useful and profitable, uh, but it's not useful and profitable because of what I say about it. Uh, it's useful and profitable because it is God's word, and we pray and ask that he would work through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, I don't presume to have a single word of wisdom of my own that is worth sharing this morning. Lord, your word alone is sufficient Your word alone is everything that we need in order to be complete and equipped for every good work. And Lord, we thank you that by the work of your Holy Spirit that you worked within the authors so that we have a written copy of everything you desire us to know for this life in this world, about who you are, what you have done and what you have called us to. And Lord, we pray that the same Spirit who wrote these words might be at work through me and in every single one of us, that your word might achieve its purposes in our life, that we might not just learn about you, but we might be transformed by you. So help us, encourage us, correct us where need be. But Lord, help us to see you more clearly in the things that you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, All of you know that I grew up in New South Wales. And when you grow up in New South Wales, the word footy means rugby league. Now, sure that when I grew up, Sydney Swans existed as an AFL team, but in my growing up, AFL was about as important to us as someone who likes winter sports might think about curling. Now, curling's kind of like that combination between lawn bowls and mopping your kitchen floor. But in 2001, I moved down to Victoria uh, to work for four years as a program director at a Christian youth camp. And you know what the hardest thing about moving there? I I wasn't surprised that people didn't like rugby league. I knew that they were really into their AFL stuff. But state of origin. Now, that's important stuff if you like your rugby league. When I first moved down to Victoria, it wasn't even live on television It didn't come on until after the late night news. So we're talking like a 11 o'clock start if you wanted to watch the game. And so I was there in Victoria. Everyone's into AFL. I didn't think it was footy. I didn't want to watch it. Didn't want to be around it. It was aerial ping pong or occasionally some mates used to call it gay AFL. I just didn't like it. And in my final year at Bible college... We got sent out on a week we called Missions Week, where we got assigned to a particular local church to be involved in their ministries and to be involved in their town. And the town in which we were involved in was a town called Warnham Bull out on the, on the Great Ocean Road. And we were hosted at particular family members of that church. 
And the family which I was involved in with Rex and Josie there, they loved their AFL. It was also getting really close to finals time. And so being the nice, polite kind of kid that I am, um, we sat there and we watched AFL. And they were all really getting into it. And there's something about being in a, amongst a community that is passionate about something that actually changes your mind towards things. Now, I can't say I was a total conformist. Everyone in that house was all for one particular team, so I decided just out of, out of rebellion, I'm going for the other team, which, as you know, became my love for St Kilda. And yes, I chose that because of the really poor haircut in the photo. <laughs> Now, this isn't an AFL sales speech. This isn't me saying, no, you just got to get amongst it and you're going to love it. But it's an example from my own life that when you are immersed in a community of people who are passionate about something, it does eventually affect you. Now, you may not have had the AFL experience, but you may have had time either living for a period of time or even on a holiday where you're surrounded and immersed in a completely different culture. And it changes some of the things that you think about. Some of the things that you start to begin to think are valuable. Community is an important thing. It's where culture is established. It's where values are established. It's where transformation takes place. And today as we look at the nature of the early Christian community, we're going to see not only what it was like, what were the things that they valued, what were the things they were devoted to, but we're also going to see the effect that it had upon the people who were surrounding them. In our first three weeks of his look through the book of Acts, there's been some pretty phenomenal stuff. I mean, if Jesus being raised from the dead wasn't enough, he then comes to his apostles and continues to teach them regarding the kingdom of God, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and how God was restoring a people of God. But we see something of the mission of God in Acts 1.8, which kind of summarises what they were sending his people on and also the structure of the book where we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And last week we saw the beginning of that happening. As we looked at the first 41 verses of Acts chapter 2, we saw what is famously spoken of, that moment of Pentecost. When the Spirit arrived, and it arrived in significant ways. Like we saw, there was visual things. There was these tongues that looked like fire coming and resting upon the apostles. There was the great sound of a roaring, rushing wind. There was the, as the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, they spoke in languages they'd never spoken before, and everyone who was gathered there from all different backgrounds heard it in their own native language. That power had come just as Jesus promised. And they did bear witness, bear witness in Jerusalem just as Jesus promised. They bore witness to who Jesus was, the biblical necessity that, that it was part of the plan of God for all time, that Jesus was handed over to be crucified, the biblical necessity that he was raised from the dead on the third day, the biblical necessity that, as Joel had told in Joel chapter 2, that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, male, female, slave or free. The biblical necessity that he had to ascend to the right hand of the Father to assume the throne of David, to reign forever. But amongst all the phenomenal things we saw that day, it wasn't the what they could visually see, these tongues of fire, 
wasn't the great sounds of the sound like a rushing wind. It wasn't even people speaking in a language that they'd never spoken before that got people's attention. What caused people to ask, what shall we do, was when the apostles, enabled by the Holy Spirit, bore witness to Jesus Christ, who he was, and why that was significant. And then in a little casual little reference in the last verse, verse 41, and 3,000 people were saved that day. That's quite significant. Say we're just looking at verses 42 to 47, which is kind of like a summary of the, what that spirit-filled church began to look like, what they valued, what they pursued. And so our outline this morning, we're looking at they were a learning community, a loving community, a worshipping community, and an evangelistic community. So I'm not working through sort of in order of verses as such, rather than grouping things together thematically on this, on this occasion. So first and foremost, they were a learning community. Now part of me wonders if in the very first day they've, they've come to faith, they have seen great miraculous signs and wonders, would the earliest Christian communities be marked by a pursuit of that type of thing? And the simple answer is no, it wasn't the thing that they were pursuing first and foremost. Plus also, we've just noticed the thing that caused them to ask, what shall we do, wasn't those things, but the bearing witness to Jesus Christ, who he was, and why that was important. It was their power of the testimony about him, enabled by his Holy Spirit. And I know I've said this lots of times, and I'm going to say it time and time again. It is that very same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that still desires to work through us, to bear witness to Jesus Christ, who is still drawing a people to himself. But look at this, directly after 3,000 people repented and were baptised, verse 42 tells us this, and they, that is the 3,000 who just come to saving faith in Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, literally, you could say they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, devoted just means more than just being a keen student. There can be lots of things that you like to learn about. Devotion speaks more about a, a real central committed commitment. There's, there's actual transformation that takes place. It's not just learning about, but this shapes and forms who I am, what I value. And this was characteristic of those early believers. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And it's interesting, when you think back to the Great Commission, what did Jesus command his apostles to do? He told them, go, make, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Check, they've done that. And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the apostles were obedient to the thing Jesus has commanded them. But it also shows us something else. One of the signs that a person has come to be a new creation is Christ is that they desire and they hunger for the word of God, the teaching of the apostles. Peter makes the same point in 1 Peter chapter 2, saying that like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, 
You will do what a new baby will do. You will crave for the milk. You will crave to know more about this, about this God whom you've come into relationship with. Anyone who's seen a baby know they don't do much. They poo a lot. They cry a lot. They sleep a lot. But usually when they're crying, it's one of those two things. They either want to sleep or they are hungry. And you can have a little child who's absolutely bawling their eyes out and give them the milk, they're happy. It's what they long for. It's what they want. And what Peter's saying is, as Jesus' followers, our desire should be so deep to know him more through the written word given to us by his apostles. Sure, babies grow up. They don't always live on milk. Uh, the Bible uses that analogy of, of the milk being the basics of the gospel of who we are in Christ. We need to grow up into maturity in the meatier things. But still, babies still need to be fed. Even when they get older and they become grown-ups, Christians always need to be fed. We always need to be people who are hungry. We want to know more. We want to know our God more intimately, more deeply. And just like our dietary intake, it matters what we take into us. If you take in the wrong thing, it is going to have an unhealthy effect upon you. We're very familiar with the verse in 1 Corinthians where we're told, do not deceive yourself. Bad company corrupts good morals. And we often think, well, make sure we hang around the right people. I think that extends further than just the people we hang around. It's not just bad company, bad worldviews surrounding us. What we surround ourselves with will impact us, whether we like it or not. As Christians, we are called, according to Paul in Romans 12, we are called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And if we want our minds to be renewed, as in made new, then we need to be feeding on the things that are going to lead us into our new life, not the things that characterise the old. As we see in the earliest believers, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That doesn't mean we should say, oh, we missed out. If only we were there, we could get the, the teaching from the apostles directly. What do you think your New Testament is? The New Testament is a written record inspired by the Holy Spirit encapsulating the apostles' teaching about Jesus' life, death, resurrection and what the Holy Spirit did through ordinary people in the beginnings of the early church. But for us, as we consider ourselves to be a missional people, bringing people to know Jesus, I want us to look back to these first believers. They came to faith. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't something they came to further down the track. Now, a number of you know that in our community groups, we're looking at a thing called the Discipleship Training School to, to kind of help us be equipped to go and make disciples. And one of the things that we've spoken about during that process is the idea of using the word of God to bring people to salvation. Using, sitting down with someone, reading through one of the Gospels, let the word of God speak for itself. Do what it says it's able to do to make us wise to salvation. One of the reasons why I love that method is that if a person comes to know and trust Jesus through the word, then they know this is the place where I return to to continue to grow, to continue to be fed, to, tend, to continue to grow to maturity. So the first element of the Spirit-filled church, they were a learning church devoted to the teaching. And at Eastgate, we will continue and unapologetically be devoted to the Scriptures. 
The same scriptures that tell us will help us to be complete and equipped for every good work. We don't go on to maturity and say, oh, now we've got something in addition. If God himself says this gives us everything we need to be complete and equipped for every good work, we look nowhere else. Second sign, it was a loving community. There was something beautiful about that early church community, wasn't there? Like at Pentecost, Peter speaks out and he says, you know what Joel spoke about in Joel chapter 2? How God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. This is not just an isolated group. This would come upon all of God's people, whether a male or female, slave or free. The New Testament writers, particularly Paul later on, speaks of the gathering of, of God's people as a body, all equal of worth, working together for that one unified body. There wasn't much room for superiority in the early church, was there? Well, there was not much, there's no room for superiority in Christianity. We're all on a level playing field beforehand that we were, we were sinful under God's judgment beforehand. We all enter into the same salvation. We're told by Paul in Ephesians 1.3 that we receive every spiritual blessing. There's not super Christians and subpar Christians. There's not a super salvation that only the elite get. It's the same salvation. But they're not just related to one another, but they have a belonging to each other. In verse 42, we saw the, one of the marks they were devoted to the teaching. They are also secondly mentioned in verse 42 as being devoted to fellowship. That's one of those funny words we use in Christian churches, isn't it? Fellowship. It can mean everything between having a cup of coffee outside or, or a potluck lunch or something like that. You probably even heard the Greek word for it. You might even be able to say koinonia. Now we've got a number of people in our church who've done a bit of study in, in New Testament Greek. And the particular Greek that it was written in is called Koine Greek. You may notice there's a similarity of words there, which simply means common Greek. It was the common basic Greek shared by everyone that everybody used. And so this concept of fellowship is simply an idea of a common sharing. And the Bible uses it in two different ways, both which are present in our passage. It can speak of a common sharing of particular things, like we see in verse 45, as people had need, people had no problem selling their things in order to meet the needs of others. But also sharing of a common experience or a common identity as they enter into the exact same salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're in a good Anglican church, you've probably repeated this at the end of many of your services. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to unite us into common unity with the Father and with the Son. John also speaks of this common union which results from the apostles' teaching, saying that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship speaks about a commonness of identity, of a common salvation, a common unity with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and with one another. In verse 44 we read about, And all of those who believe were together, having all things in common. There weren't people with different levels of salvation experience. They had all things in common. 
Paul says, Ephesians 1.3, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And because of their common unity, it affected the way in which they related to one another. Because they were on level playing field, they related and valued one another on the same level playing field. Verse 45, which often gets quoted and used out of context, so it's important we put up and have a look at it. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needs. Now often people look at that verse and they misinterpret and say, okay, what the early Christians did is they had nothing. They just lumped everything together in a big old pile and says, this is anyone, anyone just take as a need. That's not what the verse says. Nor is it what happens throughout the rest of the book of Acts. What it does say, well, firstly, what it doesn't say, it doesn't say they sold their possessions. It doesn't say there was a single moment where the, in totality they sold everything they had. It doesn't say they should have nothing for themselves. What it does say is they were selling. There was an ongoing habit according to occasion of selling. And it tells you what caused and prompted those occasions in the second half of that verse, as any had need. So it didn't say that they sold everything. It says, as people had a need, not as a result of commandment or compulsion, but voluntarily, such was the unity amongst the brothers and sisters that they would willingly sell something that was theirs in order to meet the needs of another. So it's not communism, it's not socialism either. But it's part of the Christian ethos. Selflessness. Thinking more highly of others than yourself. As John says in 1 John, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in needs, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says it's foreign. Now when you've received so richly from God and you see a brother and sister in need and you're like, nothing. It doesn't make sense. But there's some contextual issues we need to consider that we can't ignore when it comes to verse 45. Remember the context. Here they are gathered in Jerusalem, a group of Jewish religious people have just repented. So they've just said that everything they've been doing up to that point was wrong and then been baptised, which in the Jewish point in time, the only people who got baptised were Gentiles as a way of saying they were unclean, they needed to be washed in order to be right before God. And now these Jewish people are repenting, saying we got it wrong and being baptised, they were separated from their families at times. There was division, just as Jesus promised there would be. And as a result, coming to faith may mean your normal source of provision and care was taken away from you. And because of that, as people entered into the faith community and people saw their needs, people willingly said, I will give up something which is mine in order to provide for the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, we need to say, it never condemned the owning of property. I mean, you just need to go to verse 46 about how it talks about sharing meals in their homes. Or you go to Acts 5, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember who had a property? They sold it and they said that they gave all their money to the apostles, but they kept some of it to themselves. 
The issue was never about the fact that they had a house or even the fact that they sold it and got money for it. The issue was that they lied. They wanted to give the impression they were giving everything when they weren't. When you see Peter's response, you see the issue wasn't the having of the property or even having money. Peter says, when it remained unsold, did not it remain your own? He says, before you sold it, it was yours. It was fine for you to have it. And then when you did sell it, was not the money at your disposal? As in, there was no requirement for you to give it anywhere. You could do whatever you like. The problem was that you told us you were doing something different than what you did. So the early church community was a loving community, united together, same salvation, valued one another equally, and therefore treated one another with that same love. Thirdly, they were a worshipping community. They were devoted to teaching and fellowship, we've seen. From verse 42, then it goes on to say, and breaking of bread and prayers. Now, if you're familiar with biblical terms, breaking bread can refer to just having a meal together, or it can be referred to communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever you choose to call it. Certainly when you get to verse 46, and it talks about um, breaking bread, receiving their foods with thanks in their homes, it seems to be the impression of, of sharing a meal there. But when we look at verse 42, everything which surrounds this expression, breaking bread, is speaking about religious or spiritual things. So it seems most likely what they were devoted to here, referred to in verse 42, was the Lord's Supper, the communion, or, or even the word Eucharist. There's nothing wrong with the word Eucharist. If you get scared, you think it sounds a bit Catholic. It just is, it comes from the word meaning to give thanks, and it is the thing that we come to give thanks for, what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a visual reminder instituted by Jesus with his own disciples that he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember of his sacrifice on our behalf. To which Paul added to that by saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you comes. So it serves to remember what he did, but also it proclaims that he is coming again. In one sense, it sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it, that they were devoted to this. Because we think we're so far from it, we need to be reminded of it. Most of these people probably saw Jesus crucified. It was probably very much in their mind, but they were still devoted to doing it. Devoted to remember this central thing by which they were saved, by which they have come into this new faith community. It's a funny thing when you're visiting a new church, isn't it, when they gets up to communion. Because everyone's got different ways they do it and how regular they do it. And when it gets to communion, the first thing you do, you kind of keep a little look at the side of your eyes, see what everyone else is doing because you don't want to do it the wrong way. And then how often do you do it? You, get, you have everything from churches that do it every single week to every second week to once a month to once every six months to once every year. Because the Bible never says how often to do it. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul, in the reading we just had from 1 Corinthians, says, as often as you do it. But at the same time, there have been some churches that have decided, we're not going to do it at all. This thing that the early church was devoted to, some have decided, if we do it too frequently, they're worried that people are going to find it too common, too mundane, it's going to lose its meaning. So some people have said, we're not going to do it. I would suggest to you, If what is being represented in communion, if Jesus' death on behalf of sinners has lost its meaning, I don't think the problem is the fact that you've had communion too frequently. I think the problem is you've you've lost sight of the great salvation that was secured. 
I don't think we should give it up. Just because we feel it's lost in meaning, I think we should look at what Jesus Christ has done. I mean, when we look to our own passage, the early church, they were devoted to, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking bread, they were devoted to it. This was something, regular part of routine, and they didn't say, and we got so mundane, we stopped doing it. Verse 43 says, and awe fell upon every soul, which should always be the right result of right worship of God. When you come to see him and worship him for who he is, should result in awe. Now let's be honest for a moment here. Our experience of church, doing things together, seeking God, doesn't always bring a sense of awe, does it? It should, but it doesn't always. Sometimes it could be something in our own heart. Sometimes we just might need to come before God and say, God, I don't know what it is, but I don't sense the sense of awe that I want you to sense. I don't know if I'm here for something for myself or I'm looking in the wrong places, but I just want to see you. I want to see you clearly. I want to know my saviour. I want to know the joy of my salvation. These followers devoted to the Lord's Supper and to prayers, it says also, verse 42. Literally the prayers, it says. I don't know if they were particular set prayers. It seems more likely that they were still committed to the idea of there were being Jewish set periods of times where they would come together and pray. We see that happening in the next chapter where they come to the temple during the time of prayer. But they were still the people who were devoted in prayer. That this God who was saved and they needed to cling on to him with all they had. This was the means by which they could communicate and talk to the God who had saved them. And fourthly and lastly... They were an evangelistic community. Noted last week in verse 41, it just seems like a casual passing reference. After the end of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. It's almost like a similar casual reference we see in the final verses of this passage we've looked at this morning. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Sometimes you can read through that and miss that. Every single day, God was adding to their number. Which is also an important reminder with regards to the nature of outreach and evangelism. God added them to their number God is the evangelist God is the one who does the saving but can you imagine a church community where people come to faith every single day you want to know what I find most interesting in this passage there is not a single mention about an intentional extra action to go out to evangelise or to do outreach Originally, I was just going to put up verse 47, but there's a connection of words between verse 46 and 47. Verse 46, day by day, describing the nature of this early community, this community who was devoted to the teaching, devoted to their fellowship, devoted to prayers, rejoicing and joyful in the awe of God. And as this went on day by day in this community, God added to their number day by day. The natural outworking of a community of people 
in awe of God, declaring his wonders, praising him, giving thanks, drew people to God. And God saved them day by day. Just imagine a community where people just say, no, I'm going to sell my stuff, I want to help you. That's going to be an attractive community to get in amongst, isn't it? But as they shared together, it tells us that they were in awe, they were praising, they were full of joy. In that context, the Lord added to their number. It doesn't talk about having an additional pursuit. It was part of the nature of who they were. Their very lifestyle was evangelistic. So often we look at that, what do I need to do to reach people? We don't need to add an activity to our life. We need to change our lifestyle to be evangelistic. Not to do evangelism, but to be an evangelistic people of God. Their lives naturally proclaimed the gospel. Not only in their words, but in their demonstration of their love for one another. Community is a powerful thing. For those who have been doing our discipleship training school, the final session, it hasn't been recorded yet, is talking about mission in community. We talked about in the introduction how, how community shapes and transforms our values and the ways in which we think. I mean, just think about our own world in which we live in. 20 years ago, there are things that we would never have pictured being in, in, our, in our world today. How values have changed. Yet you go to other places in the same world at the same time who haven't adopted those communities, haven't embraced those ideas. I know I keep banging on about Sam Chan's book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, but in that book he talks about plausibility structures. That where some, one person tells you something, you might take it or leave it, but where there are a community of, of people who all say, I've experienced the same thing, all of a sudden it becomes that little more believable. Like he used the example of just telling a really whacked out story and everyone's like, nah, no, one would, no one would believe that. But I want you to think about what the gospel is to someone who's not from a church background, what it sounds like. To think that a God you can't see, that nobody made, brought everything into existence just by speaking. He's worthy of all of our honour, but we've rejected him. We deserve death. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He died. He rose again three days later. If we trust in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and we, he's coming back and we can go and spend an eternity with him. Just take off your Christian background and imagine hearing that for the first time. It sounds pretty unbelievable, doesn't it? But when you are in a community and you see lots of people who, are, who aren't crazy, then all of a sudden this is something that needs to be considered. This is something that needs to be thought about. There's a big difference, though, between this early church community and ours. They didn't have separate spheres of friends groups. They didn't have their, their, their Christian friends and their other friends. They had their community of people. And in the community of people they have, which is a mixture of both who did, had come to faith and those who had not, they lived out their faith. They proclaimed they were in awe of God. People could see they were devoted to God. They could see their love, the way they related to one another, the way they spoke of God. And it affected the people around them. The Lord added to the number day by day. So I would encourage us to think about our friends groups and thinking, why do I have little pockets here, there and there? 
What would it look like to merge my friends so my friends become their friends? To allow them to see what Christian community looks like, see how we relate to one another, see what our lives look like. Get to know them, get to know the things they love and value. And in return, they'll come to know the things that we love, we value. Imagine the joy of being in a community where we could even say at a conservative number, the Lord added one a month to the number. It's a wonderful picture of the early Christian church. But as glorious as it all sounds, a church who were devoted to these things, it still had problems. You look through the nature of the early church, they had problems. And I think it's not for mistake that we're given this encouragement in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now these early church, they were devoted to the teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, to Lord's Supper. They were doing these things together. They were doing things together, they were praying together, they were encouraging together, they were learning together, having meals together, they loved one another. But they weren't perfect. Guess what? No church ever will be. People in this church will let you down. I will let you down. If I haven't already, odds are high I'm going to do it at some point. But if you are looking for an excuse to separate yourself from a community of God's people, you will find it in every single church. But we need our Christian community. It's the place where we learn to forgive. It's the place where healing takes place. It's the place where others encourage us to help us to grow into maturity. We need to learn together, pray together, do life together, have people show us when we're heading off track. When you've got a community that is devoted to God and each other, like what we see here, it does affect those who are around us. There is a sense of awe, there's a sense of joy. And if you get excited reading a passage like this, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things for me. I want you to pray two things for me daily. Now, I don't know how many of you actually pray for your church on a daily basis, hopefully all of you, but I don't know that. I want you to pray that Eastgate will be a place where people are devoted to the word of God They are devoted to prayer. They are devoted to fellowship. They are devoted to worship. They are devoted to loving one another. And secondly, because you're part of this church you've just prayed for, I want you to pray that you would be devoted to the word of God, that you would be devoted to prayer, you would be devoted to fellowship, you would be devoted to loving one another and to the worship of God. And that the end result of that, pray that God would do his work just through the organic nature of who we are and who he's called us to be, that we would be a vessel that God would work through to continue to add people to his number for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes we can so easily skim read through what you have done in the book of Acts and just miss little things. But Lord, where you are active and where you are sought amongst the people, you work. Lord, we thank you that you are still at work in this world. We know we're often so short of who you have called us to be. Lord, we pray for us that you would, you would keep us devoted to your word, not just devoted as in reading it out of compulsion, but out of a deep desire to know you more.
deep desire, knowing that everything you have given to us for our good, to, to gladly put on the things that you lay before us and to gladly put to death the deeds of the flesh, to love one another, knowing that we are all equally valued as children in, in your kingdom, to desire that sort of fellowship and intimacy, have a sense of awe about you and joy and praise, doing things together, loving one another, praying, growing, learning. And Lord, we pray that we'd be a people who live in a community, not in a a closed Christian bubble community, but a community of wherever we live. The people would see the gospel at work, not only visually, but in the things that we talk about, the things that we proclaim, that they would see that and say, that is a wonderful good news you share. That it's not just about being saved to enter into a church and stay there until Jesus comes back and then we go be with him. But a good news that not only transforms our eternal future state, but transforms the community and the world in which we live. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.